We're going to continue our series, actually finish our series through the book of Proverbs today. And before I get into my message, I just want to add to what Pastor Kate mentioned during our time of prayer. You know, the anti-Asian violence that we are seeing in our country is tragic. It's heartbreaking. It's evil. And I can only imagine the grief and anxiety that so many of our new lifers are experiencing and so many watching online are experiencing. And so we want, I just want to give a pastoral word. If you are in need of prayer, if you're feeling fear, anxiety, grief, uh, we're here to serve you. And that's why our pastoral team is here. That's why our elders are here. That's why our deacons are here. And so if you ever come to a point where you just want to process, you just need someone to pray with you, uh, feel free to reach out to us. We are here to serve you. Amen? Amen. And so we're continuing our series here, actually closing our series through the book of Proverbs. And I want to encourage you, uh, even though we're going to be done with the book of Proverbs today, to read the book of Proverbs on your own time. Amen. You don't just have to read it while we're preaching on it. And so you can read it in March and in April and uh, May and June and the rest of your life. And next week we're going to begin a series focusing on the book of Jonah, which I'm very excited to begin. But today we're going to end this message focusing on how the book of Proverbs begins. Ending this series focusing on how the book of Proverbs begins. What does the fear of the Lord mean? The book of Proverbs begins with focusing on the fear of the Lord. And so I'm going to focus on two passages today, and you can follow along on the screen. What is the fear of the Lord? That's what we are going to address today. Hear the word of the Lord. Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open up our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we would receive every gift you have for us this day. And may we walk in the fear of the Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Having two young kids means that I, I watch a lot of Disney and Pixar movies. And one of my favorite movies that I come back to from time to time whenever it's shown on television is Monsters, Inc., Monsters, Inc., just a great film. Uh, the premise of this movie is simple. Uh, monsters would scare kids at night because the screams of the children is what powered the city, and it was the energy source of the city, the currency of the city. But by the end of the movie, we see that there's something much more powerful than fear that can power the city. And I don't want to spoil it for you, so watch it. But I want to emphasize that one part of the story, that it is a city that's powered by fear. Monsters, Inc. is not just a delightful family film. It also serves as a metaphor for the world that we find ourselves in, the political world we find ourselves in, the social world we find ourselves in, the religious world we find ourselves in. Our fallen world is powered by fear. The currency of a sinful world is powered by fear. And too often, Christianity falls into this trap. In 1927, the British mathematician, a guy by the name of Bertrand Russell, wrote an essay entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. 
And it's an important read. And this is what he says. He says it has to do with the relationship between religion and fear. He said religion is based, I think, primarily and mainly upon fear. It is partly the terror of the known and partly, as I have said, the wish to feel that you have a kind of elder brother who will stand by you in all your troubles and disputes. Fear is the basis of the whole thing. Fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. Fear is the parent of cruelty, and therefore it is no wonder if cruelty and religion has gone hand in hand. His point is that science can help us deal with our irrational fears. And we might disagree with his conclusion, but he hits on something really important. That people are too often scared into religion. One of the reasons why people have given up on religion and Christianity in particular is because they have experienced an approach to the spiritual life that's driven by fear. Fear sadly plays a big role in religion. Preachers have used fear to try to get people to convert. Some Christians have prophesied a particular end of the world. It gave a particular date to get people to convert to Jesus. And then when they get the date wrong, they just give a new date. And it always was perplexing because in the Gospels, uh, it says that no one knows the day or the time, not even the Son knows, that's given to the Father. And yet some people have conveniently forgotten that Bible verse when they give a date and when they get get it wrong, they give another date. But Christians throughout many years have tried to use fear as a strategy. And here's what it sounds like. Preachers get up and they say, you know, God loves you, but if you don't say yes to God, something bad is going to happen to you. Now, there's a reason for this. Fear is a great motivator to change behavior. As a matter of fact, the more skilled someone is in promoting fear, the more power that person gains. It's a great political strategy. But this is what I know. It's impossible for fear to transform hearts. And so the important question for us as we close this series is, is the essence of Christianity fear-based? When we look at this passage, it seems as if we are in a conundrum. Because Proverbs essentially says that to live a wise life begins with the fear of the Lord. And yet, if fear and religion tend to be a bad thing, how do we reconcile this tension? And this is what I want to explore in the book of Proverbs. The phrase, the fear of the Lord, shows up over 10 times in the book of Proverbs. Here's a running list of some short examples. In Proverbs 1, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 2, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Proverbs 9, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 10, The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Proverbs 14, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. Here's the facts. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is a good thing, but most people believe that fear in religion is a bad thing. The question then becomes, what is the fear of the Lord? 
Now, before we can answer that question, I want to come at it from a different perspective. I want to come at it from a separate angle. Because before we can talk about what the fear of the Lord is, I want to highlight what the fear of the Lord isn't and how many people tend to live in, uh, in contrast to the fear of the Lord. If we are called to live in the fear of the Lord, what does it look like? If I can put it on a spectrum, I want to focus on two opposite views that are are contrasted against the fear of the Lord. If I put it on a spectrum, if the fear of the Lord is in the middle and this is what we're called to live into, on one end of the spectrum we have being afraid of God. On the other end of the spectrum we have people being too familiar with God. And both of these are, are, are set against what it means to experience and to live in the fear of the Lord. It's two ways that we reject the fear of the Lord, being afraid of God or too familiar with God. I want to focus on both of these for a moment. Afraid of God. Many people misinterpret fear of the Lord for meaning, it to, meaning to be afraid of God. Some of us have been taught consciously or unconsciously, to walk on eggshells with God because any wrong move can lead to punishment. And this kind of relationship with God sees God as moody, as irritable, as angry, as volatile, as a violent cosmic being. And this God is just waiting on us for us to mess up So God can just pounce us. It reminds me of the game Whack-A-Mole. You're familiar with the game Whack-A-Mole. You go to the uh, festivals or carnivals or whatever it is, and and there's this little machine where these little poor things put their head up, and and your job is to smash it down as quick as you can. And the more points you get for as hard as you can, just smash it down as quick as you can. Many of us believe that God is this cosmic Whack-A-Mole person with a hammer in his hand waiting for us to mess up. And so, forgot to pray, whack. Not reading the Bible, whack. Falling into sin, whack. Struggling with doubt and faith, whack. And and we might not believe that God hits us that way, but what what happens is we begin to interpret life whenever things don't go our way as God being responsible for our misfortunes. And so you lost your job, it must be because God is judging me. Caught COVID, it must be because God is judging me. Can't find a parking spot, it must mean, amen, because God is judging. Sometimes I'm circling, I'm like, Lord, what did I do? What did I do? And so living afraid of God is actually bondage. And what ends up happening is this, brothers and sisters. Because we live afraid of God, we often tend to do our best to avoid God's anger by keeping all the rules. But you can keep all the rules and not have a renewed heart. This is religion at its worst. Keeping all the rules and not having a renewed heart. I think about the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son, many of us are familiar with it. Luke 15 should really be called the story of the two lost sons. Because both sons are lost in this story. 
You know the story. A younger son says to his father, Dad, give me my inheritance, my portion of the inheritance. And people in that age would typically, uh, in that culture, you would give your inheritance to your children when you died. And so with a younger son saying, give me my portion of the inheritance, he's basically saying, Dad, I want you to drop dead right now. Give me my stuff. The father graciously gives him his portion of the inheritance, and the younger son goes out and spends his money in riotous living. He does whatever he wants, and he's known as the prodigal son. He's lost. He's far from home. The younger son left the house, and he's far from home. But listen to this. The elder son stayed in the house, but he too was far from home. The younger son led a careless appetite-driven, zero-discernment life. He was wasteful. He was undisciplined. He was far from home. The elder son was responsible, went to church every Sunday, gave generously, was a model citizen. And on the surface, it looked like he was home, and he was physically, but spiritually and emotionally, he was also far from home. One son was far from home geographically. The other son was far from home spiritually and emotionally. And what happens is the son, because he's, he's so afraid of breaking the rules and such, he wants to stay home, he finds himself angry. Look at what he says in the text. It says, the older brother, when the younger son comes home and the father says, my younger son is back, let's throw a party. The older brother became angry and refused to go in and looks at his father and says, look, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. The elder brother did all the right things, but his heart was far from his father. And I just want to say just parenthetically that some of the angriest people are the people who've always been good. Amen, somebody. Some of the angriest, resentful people are all the people who do all the right stuff, good behavior all the time. But what we find in this story is that this son is trying to control perhaps what he's receiving. And what we often do is because we're so afraid of God. We try to control by good behavior. And so many of us live on that spectrum of being afraid of God, believing that God is about to hit us at any given time. But there's another way that we don't live in the fear of the Lord according to that spectrum, and it is to be too familiar with God. Some of us are too afraid of God. Some of us are too familiar with God. We make decisions without any thought of God. God doesn't factor into our decisions with our money. God doesn't factor into our decisions with what we do with our body. God doesn't factor into our decisions with our relationships. God doesn't factor into our decisions with our career. As a matter of fact, all we ask God to do is bless what we've already decided to do. We are too familiar with God. God, we're very flippant with God. And what begins to happen is we so reduce God to us that there's no longer any kind of fear of the Lord. In 2000, when I became a Christian in 1999, I remember just a couple of years after, I started seeing all these t-shirts that people wearing, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jesus is my homeboy. You remember that? Do you remember that? Jesus is my homeboy. And, and, and it's cool, and I had a shirt, and it is cool. 
But what this often shows us is we can become very flippant with Jesus and very flippant with God. And the book of Proverbs really is is to help us. The fear of the Lord is to help us to resist being too afraid of God or being too familiar with God. The fear of the Lord holds together aspects of who God is that keeps us in awe of God. And this is what is important that I highlight. Sometimes we live according to one dominant image of God. And this one dominant image, if we just stick to that one dominant image, can give us a distorted picture of who God is. Which is why Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian, said these words. He says, we need a lot of images of God. The more images we have, the less likely we are to identify them with God. And the more likely we are to realize that God is the incomprehensible mystery behind all images. One of the dangers of Christianity and Christian spirituality is we tend to see God exclusively in one way which drives the way we live in the world. For some of us, we only see God as this cosmic teddy bear who's just always nice and always just, it's okay, I know you mess, it's all, don't worry about it. Or to use it in a, in a more biblical way, we see God as a comforting father. And it is true that God is a comforting father. But that's not the only image of God in the Bible. God is a comforting father. But the same Bible that talks about God as a comforting father also talks about God being a consuming fire. God is a comforting father and God is a consuming fire. And the question is, are we supposed to choose? Not at all. We are to hold these two in dynamic tension with each other. And we are to hold the truth. God is a comforting father and God is a consuming fire. It's for this reason why I tend to have different postures of prayer. Physical, bodily postures of prayer. Because I don't want to get to a point where I just have one image of God in my mind. And I want my prayer life to reflect that. It's often the case that when I pray, I sit down on my chair or sit down somewhere in my, and, and I just open my hands and, and I see God as, as comforting father. I see God as the friend of sinners and it's like I'm having a conversation with God and I'm just sitting in the presence of God and it's a beautiful thing. But I also know that this is not the only posture that I'm supposed to pray in. That when I read the Bible, God is not just a comforting father or friend. God is king of kings and lord of lords. And so sometimes my prayers look like this here now, where I get on my knees at the side of my bed, and I recognize, God, you are king of kings and lord of lords. And sometimes I need to go even farther than this. And when I have to just throw myself on the floor, brothers and sisters. Come on, help me preach this here. Sometimes you got to throw yourself on the floor. God is God and I am not. 
And if we get too familiar with God, where God is always my homeboy, and God is always cool, and God doesn't get mad at sin, and it's all good, we can live a distorted relationship with God. And so we need to reflect the, the comprehensive nature of who God is. And this is what the fear of the Lord is all about. What does it mean to fear the Lord? You probably, well, get to it, Pastor Rich. What do you mean? I want to give it to you right now. To fear the Lord means to be in awe and in wonder of God. In awe. When, when I heard Samantha's story, did you hear the word she used? I was in awe, she said. I was blown away in wonder of God. Eugene Peterson says, the fear of the Lord pulls us out of our preoccupation with ourselves, our feelings, and our circumstances into a world of the wonder of God. That fear, when healthy fear, the healthy fear of the Lord must be understood as reverence. As awe, a loving awe, a love that fears to disappoint. We aren't afraid of someone we trust. Rather, we're afraid of not being worthy of the trust they've given us. And so we live with fear, a healthy fear of the Lord. I see this play out in my marriage. I like to think that I have a healthy fear of my wife. <laughs> I think sometimes it is unhealthy, but, um, <laughs> but I, have, I like to think a healthy fear of my wife. One of the tensions over 16 years of marriage, and uh, we just celebrated 16 years a couple of weeks ago, and uh, just wonderful time. Amen. And there have been times when I have not given thought to my ways, which has caused me to overcommit to things, not giving Rosie adequate time to adjust. No need to nod your head, honey. Don't, don't, just, just. <laughs> there have been times over the 16 years of our marriage where I forgot to tell her that I am leading an event or going to be doing this or doing that. And I tell her, you know, just a couple of hours before, oh, honey, I forgot to tell you. Uh, I have this thing tonight, and she goes, when were you deciding to tell me this? I just did right now. I just, I just did right now. And, 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 and this has led to a lot of stress in our relationship. And so over the years, I have tried to work really hard to atone for my sins. I've tried to work really hard to, to think ahead of time. I've tried to be really hard to, and so we've taken out calendars and, and planned out the year and, and, and planned out the month and, and planned out the week, and we've been doing really good with it. I've tried to work this out. I've tried really hard to make it right. But yesterday, I realized that I forgot to communicate something to her about an event that we have next week at New Life. And so I woke up thinking, I forgot to have a conversation. And then I looked at our family calendar and I see it's not there. And so I began to have a fear of my wife, just, just a fear. <laughs> 
And so she gets out of bed. I was up before her. I make her some tea. I bring the tea to her. And uh, I do this every morning, I want to tell you. But this time it was different. I was just like, hopefully this will make her put her in a good mood here. And, and I gave her the tea. And I, I said, honey, I, you know, I, I realized I forgot to mention something about our schedule. Next week, next Saturday, I, I have this event. And her response was, oh, I know, I know. I got the email from the church. <laughs> and when were you going to tell me? You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and I told her, and, and, and she was so gracious with me. Thank you, honey. She was so gracious with me. But here's the thing. I had a fear of Rosie. My fear wasn't, oh, no, when she finds out about this, I'm going to have to sleep on the couch. Oh, no. When she finds out about this, she's going to kick me out. She's going to hit me. It was none of that. It was, I don't want to disappoint her again. I don't want our relationship to be messed up in this way again. I, it's a, fear, a healthy fear of my wife. I want to maintain connection with her in this way. So I want to be thoughtful about my ways. And I'm glad I'm not the only person who deals with this. I love, I remember having a mentor and uh, just a, a wise man of God, a kind of a, a sophisticated man of God. And, and I remember one day I see him, I'm having a conversation with him, and he starts packing his bag real quick. Kind of just like short, I'm trying to think of what's going on here. Why are you shortening the conversation? We're deep in it. And he's packing the bag real quick. And he said, Rich, I got to go. And he put on the bag, and he's usually just walking kind of cool. And he ran out of the thing. And I, and I said, are you going to be late for your train? What's, what's going on? And he said, no, no, no. I'm going to be home later than I I told my wife I would be. I got to get home. And he ran home. I found so much joy in that. I'm not alone. Come on, man. You've run home as well. Come on, man. I, I, I got to get out of here. I got to get home. But what I saw in that was this, uh, this, this, what the fear of the Lord is, this utter preoccupation we have with God that leads me to ordering my life around God's ways. And the question is, why does this lead to wisdom? If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, why is this so? And I just want to highlight three things for us before we sing and close our gathering. To have a healthy fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Number one, because it helps us realize that God is God and I am not. You want to grow in wisdom? Begin here. God is God, and I am not. Wisdom, brothers and sisters, is about having a proper estimation of ourselves. And the fear of the Lord places us exactly where we need to be. When you look in the scriptures, what you often see is this. You see God in all God's glory manifested. And then you see immediately the people who are, who are encountering the glory and holiness of God recognize how little they are. <laughs> Psalm 8 says this way. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. The moon and the stars which you have set in place. Verse 4, what is humankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. When you have God in the right place, we find ourselves situated in the right place as well. In, John, in Revelation chapter 1, when John the apostle encounters the glory of the risen Jesus Christ, John says, when I saw his glory... 
I fell at his feet as though I was dead. He could not handle the glory of God. And when we get the glory right, we get our own story right. We find ourselves positioned properly. What this, what this is supposed to do is to cultivate humility in us. Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Because it cultivates humility. Humility says, I need help. Humility says, I don't know. Humility says, I'm finite. Humility says, life is so temporary. Humility says, I am dust from dust and I will return to dust. And wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord produces humility. Secondly, the fear of the Lord leads to us giving careful thought about our ways. Why? Because our goal is to please God. If your goal in life is to please God, you begin to wonder, how can I give thought to my ways? How can I move beyond being reactive and, and driven by emotionality to I want to give careful thought to my ways? Why? Because I want to honor God. I want to worship God. I, I want to honor God. I want to love God. And so I want to give a careful thought to my ways. And so whether we're talking about money, whether we're talking about career, relationships, our, the way we use our bodies, our sexuality, I want to give careful thought to my ways because my life is about pleasing the Lord. And why does this lead to wisdom? Well, because the healthy fear of the Lord leads us to recognize that God wants to be active in all aspects of life. That there's no sacred secular divide with God. It all belongs to God. And the healthy fear of the Lord says, in every area of my life, Lord, I want to honor you. I want to reverence you. I want to be in awe of you. The question is, how do we live in this reality? How do we cultivate the fear of the Lord? And there's two invitations. There's plenty of things I could say, but there's two invitations. Number one, to cultivate and nurture the fear of the Lord requires us to behold, to behold the creation of God. And secondly, to behold the crucified God. You want awe? You want wonder? Behold the creation of God. There are times when I'm walking down the street, and some of us who live in the city have a hard time with this because buildings can obstruct the majesty of God. And then there are times where I just look up. Spend more than 15 seconds looking up and try to take in what you're seeing. Take a minute to just meditate on God's creation. Next time you find yourself by mountains, spend some time meditating on the mountains, the vastness of the sea the heights of the heavens, and give yourself some time not just to look up to see what's in, what's in the sky, to look up to contemplate the majesty, the holiness, the greatness of our God. And as we give ourselves to beholding the creation of God, what begins to happen is the Holy Spirit begins to form awe in us, wonder in us, the fear of the Lord, but not just creation. Behold the crucified one. In Jesus Christ, we see the awesomeness of God. We see how different God is from the world. 
A God who saves the world in weakness. A God who saves the world in self-giving, sacrificial love. Spend some time meditating on Jesus. Spend some time meditating on the cross. Spend some time reflecting and contemplating on him, absorbing all of our sin. And you will find yourself cultivating the fear of the Lord. In 2003, 2004, 2005, I I worked down by the Wall Street area. And there's this church called Trinity Wall Street, right on Broadway and Wall. And I used to go into this chapel. There's a side chapel. And I went there almost every single day, Monday through Friday, for 30 minutes during my lunch break. And I went there to pray. I'm not just saying, that, wow, Rich, you're a really good Christian. I am in desperate need of God. And I went there, and every single time I went, I was amazed that I would see one other person in there. Every single, the same person. And it was this older black woman who would come in sometimes after me, sometimes before me. And if you can put that on the screen there, this is uh, essentially where I would be for three years, Monday through Friday for 30 minutes. And she, I would be all the way in the back of this chapel and she would come all the way to the front and every time she would kneel and she would pray and be there for 30 minutes on her knees. And then she would look up and you would see our Lord Jesus crucified, a, a beautiful image of it and she would just reflect on it and look back down and look up and look back down. And doing this for three years, seeing her every single time, I could not help to think this is what the fear of the Lord looks like. Enraptured with Jesus, beholding the crucified one, the one who makes all things new through his broken and poured out body. And the more we give ourselves to giving attention to Jesus and the scriptures, the more we give our attention to focusing our minds on our Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, the fear of the Lord will begin to form our hearts. And this is what we need to live a life of wisdom. Amen. Let us pray together. Let me have the worship team come forward. Some of you in this room, you've been living your life afraid of God. And the good news is, you don't have to be afraid of God. In Christ Jesus, you have received justification, righteousness, forgiveness. In Christ Jesus, he has been judged on our behalf. And there's no need to be afraid of God. And then for some of us, we've been too familiar with God. Flippant towards God. And what we need is correct estimation of our lives. Throw ourselves at God's grace and mercy to recognize we are in need of rescue salvation, forgiveness. Wherever you're at, God wants to meet you. And so, Lord, 
with the Holy Spirit form all in us. Wonder. May we, li- may we not live afraid or, or too familiar. May we live in the fear of the Lord. And through this, may we live wise lives. We sing to you now about how great you are. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's sing together. Let's sing, You Give Life. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the dark. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Singing great. We sing all the earth, and all the earth will shout your Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing.
grateful heart we say you are great Let's have our prayer team come to my right. I imagine some of you.